0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Have you watched Squid Game? Um, It's not compulsory. It's not like the essential reading in a university course or something like that. In fact, it's really just a jumping off point for what we want to talk about. But it is fascinating that it exists, that it has been so popular, and that it could never have been made... In Western English speaking countries. Ooh, I mean, that's I don't a know. Big is that, is that true? Scott, I haven't introduced you yet. How dare you break the fourth wall like that? Sorry. That's Scott Stevens, everybody. He's my co host. Well, that Ali is my name. I suppose I started talking without introducing myself, too. So I can't really tell Scott off. You're listening to The Mindfield, a show about negotiating the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Scott, you disagree?
0: Do I disagree? I, I don't think it could have been done. Look, I've I've got a bit of a love-hate relationship with The Squid Game. I thought is is it possible to somewhat enjoy watching something without being glad that you're enjoying it? It's a guilty pleasure. But there's there something, something about a the show, pleasure, I don't think. It's a different sort of show to that. Well, see, I'm not sure about that. I I think whatever was discovered, whatever moment of reflection or enlightenment that comes through watching the show, I fear is covered over way too quickly by this kind of gratuitous patina of of violence. In other words, it becomes a thing about survival and zero-sum game. And so that moment of kind of shocking realization that the players are risking their lives because life in the outside world is too unbearable for them not to. Uh, There's something about that that's kind of half-interesting, but for me... Nothing in Squid Game was more, I think, perceptive, more perfectly realized than in Bong Joo-ho's film Parasite, which to my mind is just about the greatest film of the last decade. Also made in South Korea, also with a very, very peculiar cultural aesthetic, let's put it this way. Because one of the things that unites, I think, both Parasite and Squid Game is that those who exist on either end of the social or economic spectrum – nonetheless exist on the same spectrum. There are things that keep them separated. There are forms of disgust and almost visceral contempt that get in the way. But nonetheless, they exist within the same social plane. They might encounter one another, each class, the high and the low. They might encounter one another in unusual or somewhat controlled circumstances in Game through the mediation of masks and very, very tightly enforced rules, through something like parasite through the dichotomy between wealthy homeowners and their indentured or hired servants. Um, but nonetheless, there are moments where they come in contact with one another. Uh, you've also got really interesting geographical separation. So in Parasite, for instance, uh, the wealthy live in the upper parts of the city, whereas to get down to where the lower class lives, you really do have to go down, 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 down. It's it's quite extraordinary, the kind of spatial dimension. But nonetheless, for all of that, for all of the forms of spatial and other forms of cultural separation, there are nonetheless opportunities for these two groups to meet one another. They exist within the same cultural or even moral universe. And okay, some of those confrontations become violent and become incredibly fraught. But there are spaces in which they can meet one another. I think what's interesting to me, Walid, and this is maybe what you were getting at when you said that something like this, this kind of portrayal of the class differential, of inequality, this couldn't simply be depicted by Western culture. Let's, let's put it that way. I think where that's right I mean, there have been attempts, and I think those attempts have failed abysmally. I think in a a movie like The Hunt, for instance. But where you're right is that I think class doesn't grab us the way that it once did. Not not only that, class is maybe not even not representable, but class is at best a subsidiary, a subdominant theme or issue in comparison with the big Struggles for justice in our time, yeah. struggles that usually take the name of racism or sexism, struggles surrounding science and climate change, struggles. Even, I mean, j- just think about David Runciman's work. He's, he's placed age and education way above class divisions or class distinctions as one of the <laughs> fundamental dividing lines of our time. Although I increasingly this, education and class are becoming… Yes. Uh, w- y- yes. And, and in fact, education has become maybe one of the code words yeah. for class. Yes, uh, as Let's, has I inc- should say, incidentally less
1: so racism. Less so, yeah, that's probably true So well. although Although, yeah. um, well, actually, no, I'm not sure. I'll go with you. Yeah, it's it's complicated. That. It's really um, complicated. Less less so in Australia on the education thing than say in the United States. Mm, true, because w- one of the interesting things about Australia, I think, has been wealth funneling to people, for example, who do trades as entrepreneurs or sole practitioners or whatever. And so they become wealthy, even though it's not a sort of higher education, it's not like, you know university degree or doctorate level or whatever. Mm-hmm. But in mm-hmm. the United States, that doesn't seem to have happened to the same extent, right? So, um, once- precisely
0: because of the organised system of apprenticeships that there are here, and the, the still very, very, very high demand for tradespeople, it's just you're, you're right, it's nothing. Yeah, but the also the, the
1: breakdown US. of the unions. So, I mean, you yeah, know, I, right. I'd never really looked at the um, at the stats until until I had cause to recently. And in a sector like construction, it's just construction, right? If I ask you to imagine a union, close your eyes and think of a union, you're thinking of construction, aren't you?
0: Right? No, dock workers.
1: Well, okay, sure. <laughs> I don't know the dock workers figures, so that's not convenient for me. But um, construction—so less than ten percent of the construction industry is a member of a union of the construction union. So this tells you just how radical the shift has been. I mean, I, I don't want to get into all of the political economy of Australia, but what I'm interested in is. The role that we've identified here, or that you've helped me identify, um, of class in culture. And do you know, my litmus test for this, I've told you this off air, so apologies, you're going to have to hear it again. My litmus test for this is the song Working Class Man, which will mean absolutely nothing to our guest, who's American and I assume is not familiar with the oeuvre of Jimmy Barnes. <laughs> but could you imagine the song Working Class Man? Being released today? No. If it were, what would happen?
0: It would be pilloried and lampooned as an expression of nostalgic, possibly toxic masculinity. Yep. It would be taken as a glorification of something that is, if not base, then maybe symptomatic of other deeper problems, namely the privileging of white men, uh, there would be the attribution of an uh, an unwillingness to recognize, much less resist glorifying uh, certain forms of kind of chest-beating Australianness. Yep. On I, I think on just about every level, a, sh- a song like that would be taken as rubbing so violently against the grain of modern life as to be almost culpable.
1: Yeah. So no one would record it? No one would release yeah, it? Right. And if it were released, that's the reception it could likely receive? Now, I don't know, this is a counterfactual. Maybe you've overstated what would happen. But I think broadly speaking, you're probably right. That is to say, it is a song that would be so deeply out of tune with the cultural moment that it would just have no resonance beyond the kind of vaguely or perhaps even more than vaguely septic resonances you're talking about there, right? Um, Isn't that interesting? Hmm. I mean, if you take a band like Cold Chisel, of course, who Jimmy Barnes was in, uh, before he... He's the front man. And he was. One of the things that's really interesting when you listen back to it, I listened to a Cold Chisel album recently and it's just so, like, shot through with class. Like, it's it's a working man's world in the sort of, the most nostalgic resonances of that term that I can think of. You know, it's that... It, if you're a factory worker, that that's that's your world that it seems to be talking about. Now, this is just impressionistic. I haven't gone through the lyrics with a fine tooth comb but it it feels that way to me it just it's the music smells of it and these things are lauded as you know these works are lauded i think rightly as great musical achievements in the history of australian popular music but the fact that they just could not be released at all i think says something and so when i think about other forms of popular culture we don't do meditations on class anymore we do rich people. We quite like shows mm, about true. filthy rich people. So Succession uh, is an example. Um, Big Little Lies, I think, is possibly an example
0: of that. To some extent, yeah.
1: Um, I've never saw White Lotus, but I'm reliably informed it fits into that category.
0: Yeah, so it's also horrible. But anyway. Okay, that's another... well, this, is, this is you getting on but your Jonathan Do you know Franzen what we've lost, about... though? This is interesting. I wasn't expecting to say this. You know what we've lost? Mm. Remember that there used to be that whole genre of shows that had effete, spoiled, rotten, wealthy neighborhoods as more or less the backdrop. Mm-hmm. And then something like an authentic, quote-unquote, real person. Yeah. I'm thinking of something like, say, the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah. Moves into these upper-class neighborhoods, and then there's something about their honesty and their hard work and their good humor and the reality of the way in which they live and that kind of shows up. The pretensions of the wealthy and you end up, well, you know, as the shows progress, they end up with something like moments of mutual recognition where the upper class ends up learning lower class values or, you know, real yes, person's yes. values. But it's this kind of thing. And I'm really glad you brought up we have no issues with portraying the upper class because, precisely because there's something about the gratuitousness, the opulence of the wealth that we both enjoy watching And maybe to some extent enjoy resenting and then finally enjoy morally condemning. What I think is so interesting to me is that we can't then do the same. And, and sorry, bound up with all that, of course, are these moments of unexpected sympathy where you're kind of moved by the humanity, by the vulnerability, by the fragility, by the slow or hesitating moments of moral realization or the small steps forward in, in one's sort of development into something like a moral agent that then happened. What I find interesting is our incapacity, it seems to me, to do the same for the opposite end of the spectrum. And I don't really mean necessarily opposite end of the spectrum because we have ways of depicting horrific poverty. We have ways of imagining that. But one of the things that we've done, and we've talked about this on other shows, I'm not sure if you remember, but one of the effects, I think, of some of the cultural aesthetics and some of the movements within political theory in the late 1970s and early 1980s, because it tried to tackle the occurrence of severe poverty particularly within uh, otherwise opulent Western cities. One of the things, and and in, in trying to depict the gravity of the problem of poverty, what it effectively did was to portray those who are so desperately poor, almost as if they were beings from another planet, beings for whom everything must be done, for whom their plight must be alleviated, but who can't really be called members of a common community. And I think it seems to me that that's pretty much where we are. We can imagine the opulence at the top with all the corruption, self-serving, and narcissism that goes along with it. We can imagine utter decrepitude at the bottom, people for whom everything must be done. What we can't quite imagine is this large space in the middle that may well be called something like democratic common ground, a space that might be described in a previous generation as a society of equals, where... We really can regard one another. We really can understand and encounter one another despite our differences, where our total goal as a community isn't simply to alleviate poverty, but to reduce inequality. I think across the board, we've come to take really seriously big issues like racism and sexism and climate change and age discrimination, for instance, or income, vast income disparity or poor representation among certain communities in universities. We're, we're so prepared to tackle, I think, severe problems on each one of those levels. But what underlies them all is the fundamental persistence, I think, of not just class divisions, but of ever-widening class divisions that have brought us to the point where not only can we not imagine them culturally, but one of the reasons we don't encounter them or that we don't confront them is that we never encounter them. Increasingly, it seems like we're living so completely in different worlds that we simply don't confront one another, which is why I think movies like Parasite really are instructive that these families, yes, they are removed. Yes, there are levels of injustice and moral compromise and complicity that run between them. But they still exist within the same social plane. I'm just not sure if that exists anymore within the Western imaginary.
1: But it's – well, so this is a, to do with framing, right? And I think framing in politics more broadly. So I'm going to make a very crude generalization here. But progressive politics has, I think in large part, in English-speaking countries at the very least, traded class for identity. Yes, As that's right. It's kind of organising access, if you like, right? What I'm interested in is why why is it that you used to get popular culture about class and, you know, all of the things that go along with that, the sort of um, civic meeting of class and so on that you've described. Why is it that we used to get that and we don't now? And, okay, you could say because it reflects the broader change in politics that is less sensitive to... A class doesn't care so much about it. Maybe it's that we've moved to a more symbolic universe. Um, Mm, So material. I have a
0: different different hypothesis that I'm not sure you're going to like.
1: Well, I want to hear a hypothesis in a sec. But the the last thing I was thinking is, is it that it's really to do with the nature of the producers of culture so that Mm. as we've moved to a knowledge economy, really cultural power has now coalesced around education. That's not the same thing as economic power. But in some ways, cultural power is even more coveted, right? And as that's happened, the people producing culture are people from the knowledge economy. It's a product of education. Working class culture doesn't become popular because there's no space for working class culture to be celebrated. Mm. In other words, what's disappeared is any kind of sense in public culture of the working class and of members of the working class as being heroic somehow as being entitled to fulfill the role of a of a hero they might be a foil they might be a backdrop but actually increasingly heroes and heroism gathers around the axis of identity now so if you belong to a particular minority or whatever you can be heroic within a particular cultural milieu if you have all the accoutrements of privilege, then I suppose you can be heroic within a different sort of milieu But there's not really any media, is there, in which the working class and the members thereof can be heroic? And that must be to do with cultural production. Like it, it must be that the people who gather in the rooms to churn out culture simply don't include. I mean, I think about journalism as an example. Journalism mm. is becoming something you study at a university and then you go off and become a journalist. It used to be a trade. You would leave school at year 10 and go off and become a journalist. What happens in that process is that the whole cultural presence of class has to change. I feel like there's got to be something in there that explains explains this cultural shift. Now I'm willing to hear your no doubt objectionable uh, explanation.
0: Look, well, it, I think that is probably 70% of the reason. I think that's a superb explanation. I would simply add one very, very, very small thing to it. Actually, let me add a footnote to it and then add one small thing to it. (laughs) Is this the only radio show that does uh, footnotes? Yeah, possibly, possibly. (laughs) I think probably the only thing that I would add is that, especially in the two decades following the Second World War, there were fictional examples or non-fictional examples from superb writers who really did give, let's call it non-contemptuous, I mean, resolutely, Non contemptuous depictions of a life or a way of life that George Orwell described as exhibiting quote unquote common decency. In other words, yes, there might have been a bit of racism. Yes, there might have been quote unquote old fashioned family values. In other words, the man's the head of the home. Yes, there may well have been a whole lot of gruffness and maybe a degree of alcoholism. And yet, through it all, there's something that demands attentiveness. There's something that demands recognition as sharing in our common humanity. I mean, J.B. Priestley, for instance, did this. Uh, I think did it beautifully. Uh, and he did it by attending to, by being among the suburbs and other lower classes. So I think that whole realm of kind of fictional and non-fictional production is really, really interesting. And it's striking to me the degree to which it's almost entirely absent. Our guest is a notable exception to that rule. So I think that's that, That's one thing. And in, in its place, you've got someone like Jonathan Franzen who thinks he's describing the lower class, but just does it the way that someone who lives in New York describes it from his penthouse. In other words, it becomes a different form of contempt that is able to generalize about classes other than one's own rather than really attending to them. I think the other thing, we'll lead is that whatever virtues in the past lower classes might have been regarded as having, you described them before as being heroic, whatever virtues lower classes in, in the past might have been regarded as having today are regarded as irredeemable vices that run counter to the great virtues of our time, namely the preparedness to confront racism, sexism, climate change, and so on. And so uh, I think we have a kind of relativization of the very things that could in the past have been described as being noble or being commonly decent in the, in George Orwell's sense. Well
1: what are those virtues that you think have been
0: treated that way? I mean, you can't even describe it without being without being a little bit nostalgic. Mm. But you know, we we touched on this a couple of weeks ago in the show that we did with Annick Valdo on the responses of some especially in rural areas to climate change. Yeah. There's nothing necessarily inherently objectionable to a powerful desire to preserve one's community, to keep one's jobs, to preserve the legacies of labor within rural towns, legacies that are almost entirely predicated on coal or mining. Or sure, but
1: do you think those things are derided per se, or just when they get in the way of something such as emissions reduction?
0: uh, I think just about everything in our common life is moralized to some degree at the moment, and so I think the line between those two gets blurred very, 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 very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, It becomes a matter of a matter of impatience. Depends who you're talking about, though, right? Because if
1: you were talking about the preservation of forms of life and traditions and, you know, the meaning that stretches through the preservation and building of community or whatever, and you were talking about an indigenous population, yeah. then I think that would be celebrated.
0: Yes. I
2: so so
1: right. I'm not sure it's the the virtue per se so much as the way it expresses itself in certain contexts. Perhaps, yes, uh, yes. perhaps another way of expressing this would be to say that the virtues that we have associated with working class life, as expressed through culture over however many decades... Seem to be ones based on bonds, like thick solidarities. And that is a very different way of thinking about virtues than that which comes out of the knowledge set, which is about abstract ideas, rights to non-discrimination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So these are abstract things that you, you know, the understanding of which you deepen uh, at university, which is different to the kind of more concrete, material, solidaristic forms of life and, and modes of community building that I guess you might have said characterise class politics. As I say this, I'm worried you will think of me um, Jonathan Franzen. <laughs> Should I move well, on? No,
0: I don't think of you as Jonathan Franzen. <laughs> However, let me just say really, really quickly, I think where this gets really sticky is when class divisions and, if you like, the agonies of class or the wounds of class or the injuries of class are completely swept aside in favor of, well, what have you got to complain about? You're white and you're a man. So you enjoy privilege, um, yeah. So, so, so you enjoy a degree of inherent privilege. Now, I do not think it's right. I do not think it's right, as some people do, who, who strongly advocate for some kind of strong, uh, kind of chest-thumping return to concerns of class. I do not think that, that issues surrounding, for instance, uh, race or the persistence of racism, I do not think that can simply be treated as a matter of mere socioeconomic inclusion or opportunity. There are are moral divisions there that sometimes occur within class divisions. I think, for instance, at that moment in Parasite, where the wealthy owner of the house is offended by the smell of his servant. And it's that smell that ends up Uh, being a form of contempt, of diminishment, of humiliation that the servant then wreaks a degree of revenge over later. I think there's that kind of disdain, there's that kind of disgust that often attends racial divisions that is not always necessarily there when it comes to class, but often is very, very, very present when it comes to uh, divisions between races, these forms of kind of pernicious, pervasive racism. So I don't think that race and class can simply be folded into one another. What I do find offensive, however, is when some of the real injuries of class are merely diminished, are papered over, are counted as being of no account uh, in favor of the greater or the higher order issues that we say really do or really ought to dominate our Ooh. attention there, there there I think we're just being both counterproductive a little bit silly and possibly even immoral.
1: You're listening to The Mind Field if you just joined us uh, on the radio which is on RN you might be listening to us there right now but you can also catch us on a podcast anytime you like so you can listen via the ABC listen app or by following The Mind Field on your podcast platform of choice.
0: Ah, I've been waiting for this for months. Our our guest is, I think, the finest nonfiction writer in the English-speaking world, just to not raise the stakes too highly. George Packer is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He's the author of what may well be the most important book of the last two decades called The Unwinding, 30 Years of American Decline. It won the National Book Award for Nonfiction in so many ways. It anticipated, I think, some of the horrors, some of the deep contradictions and conflicts of the Trump years. His most recent book is Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. And, George, I'm just naming it right now as my book of the year. It moved me deeply. It came both as a refreshing reproach and also as a great, great solve in these difficult times. George, thanks so much for joining us on The Minefield.
2: Thank you for having me, Scott and Walid, and for setting me up to fail so spectacularly
0: as you've done in your introduction. (laughs) So um, I I don't quite know what to do at this point, other than simply to hand it over to you. I mean, one of the things that I think you did so importantly in The Unwinding, one of the persistent themes in your most recent book, Last Best Hope, is Not at any point to minimize, I think, some of the real moral confrontations over issues of persistent injustice that are rightly occupying the attention of many, 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 many people. But a kind of subdominant theme that runs throughout your work is the persistence of and the persistent injuries of class and the degree to which we have relentlessly, it seems, diminished or demeaned or treated like as no account Uh, the rightful claims that those who continue to suffer the ravages of inequality ought to make on our political and moral attention. Why do you think we find it so difficult to give a kind of full cultural, moral, or political reckoning to the persistence of class divisions?
2: There are many reasons. I mean, there are many reasons, but one that I'm actually just thinking about these days is the digital world where somehow identity and language take precedence and where the just the gritty realities of working in the information economy as a member of the service class disappear there's just almost no trace of them in the most dominant digital platforms it's as if they don't lend themselves to that they've just they've become invisible I had this sense that the the working class in America and perhaps in Australia and other Western countries has gone through this transformation over the last hundred years from the image of the factory worker, this powerful, dirty, grimy, oppressed and yet dignified and powerful man who is really at the center of social change. In the trade union movement socialism and and in economic transformation and that figure began to fade out after the second world war and became the working stiff you were talking about the culture of working class life and you could say the honeymooners is a is an Mm -hmm. example of that or all in the family where these are shows about working class people but there's nothing heroic about them, and yet there is something dignified. There is a dignity in their in their daily life in their family and they're presiding over the family
0: as the patriarch. But, the uh, end but, but sorry, sorry yeah, George just yeah. just just quickly though, both the example of the honeymooners, which I used to watch with my father and the example of all in the family, both of them were underwrit by pervasive forms of well, misogyny in the case of honeymooners. I mean, there's no other way of of describing of course yeah uh, and then of persistent kind of lower class racism in the example of of all in the family so in both cases there's a kind of dignity there's a kind of nobility and yet both are both are so noxious in times like ours and both may may have been in some respects inexcusable even in their own time and yet well and yet go on sorry yeah i mean of course And that's why
2: when you watch The Honeymooners today, it's unbearable. I remember even at the time, I was a kid in the 60s, my mother used to look at that show and turn to me and say, that's awful. Because Jackie Gleason would say, one of these days, one of these days, and he would wave his fist at his wife, like, I'm gonna punch you to the moon. So there was a threat of violence hanging over that show. And and my mother instructed me in objecting to that. All in the family, racism and yet also mocking of racism because Mm. Archie Bunker is a figure of, of comedy. But what I'm getting at is the disappearance of this figure from our culture so that the end of the industrial age, the coming of the knowledge economy, the working class becomes the service class. It becomes the Walmart store greeter. Uh, it becomes the the waiter, it becomes the the lunch counter guy. And then that figure who is, there's no heroism at all. There, There are no Labor Day parades for Walmart associates and for Target cashiers. That figure then disappears completely in the one click economy where you don't see them at all. And somehow things are done, products are boxed and shipped without any human intervention at all. And so the the winners of the knowledge economy, people like me, don't even have to think about the working class. So it has disappeared from our culture. It has disappeared in some ways from representation in the digital world because the digital world works symbolically. And I think to really feel working class life, you have to just get it on your skin. So when I wrote The Unwinding, I was, you know, praised for discovering these people in Nowheresville, North Carolina and Ohio. I didn't deserve that. All I did was go out and report, which is something that I thought was what journalists do. But it showed me how far you were talking a few minutes ago about journalism as a trade. And now it's become a profession as a profession. It's a profession of a class that talks to itself, talks to one another. And understands one another and cares about one another and is obsessed with the vagaries of careers, but doesn't know the rest of the country because there's no money in that and there's no prestige in that. So in all these, for all these reasons, there's a kind of great big void where, what, half or two thirds of, uh, at least in, in America, where people are. And
1: yeah, so, uh, allow me to say something crude and probably mm-hmm. wrong, George, and then you can sort of straighten it out then, for me. Then I'll
2: say something probably <laughs> wrong in reply.
1: Um, I think what you're saying is right, but then you think back to that moment where Donald Trump is elected and suddenly there is a huge amount of discussion of the working class and the white working class. And if we are to say, this is the bit that might be wrong, that mm. those people who put Trump in the White House were the white working class ultimately – we can't say they, would, they have no digital existence. I mean, they have a profound digital existence. Donald Trump himself did. You do get these discourse. They may not be discourses of working class life in quite the same mm-hmm. way. They become funneled into the identity politics of the age and the symbolic universe that is online political discourse. But they aren't invisible, are they?
2: Or, yeah, they're not in that way invisible. And, or, or you could say they're not unheard. They're loud, they are loud and clear. I guess what I'm thinking of is less their opinions and misopinions and lies and um, retorts and rage than just the the quality of their lives, the, the way they live, the way the way a, a novelist or a sociologist um, or a, a documentarian like James Agee would try to evoke them. That is gone from our culture so that becomes so, filtered
1: yes, through that single axis
2: it's all filtered through um the extremes that our ai driven platforms push people into
1: okay so and if, yeah if that's true why do we see parasite and squid game come out of south korea because presumably they are similarly digitized societies
2: it may just be the The genius of an individual artist who sees something missing and sees has a vision that replaces the the void with with human life, and we may not have that in in any obvious way in this country in America in terms of fiction or filmmaking. Um, There are efforts, there are efforts, but there's just so much um, self-flagellation and anxiety around this class. If we wanna let's but we should not forget that the working class is multiracial to the core. Mm,
0: That's right.
2: And that will be the revenge of on both parties. It's Mm, happening mm. now. And it's going to be the working class's revenge on both parties because both parties ignore that or deny that.
1: Yeah. I mean Um, arguably the only true working class left are, you know, gig economy Uber drivers or or something like that, and, and you probably don't need me to explain the racial composition of that group of workers, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, there is there is such a gulf between the educated and the less educated, which really is what class kind of is analysed as now. we There was the 1% for a while during Occupy Wall Street, um, but that didn't last all that long. And it's, it's a kind of a niche analysis that doesn't, I think, just doesn't describe reality as carefully as it needs to be described. There's really the 10 percent who are the upper class and who are the, the educated, the winners of, of the information age. And they have outsized influence in culture and in politics. They own the Democratic Party um, and they have driven it to the left in a way that makes a lot of non-white working class Americans uncomfortable and um, even has driven some of them into the dubious you know embrace of Donald Trump so but we were going somewhere that I've now forgotten
1: well we we're, were talking this. about yeah. why south korea might be different and look plainly none of us are experts on south korean society unless Scott you have something you want to pull out of your pocket that I'm, I'm not aware of which might make it well.
0: difficult I will just say I will just say very very quickly. Um, Parasite and Squid Game are not by any stretch unusual when it comes to South Korean digital production. So Inequality. why is this?
1: This is what i Is it to do with the sort of the contradistinction with the North? And oh, well, so capitalism well, as an organising principle becomes sharp hmm. in a way that it might have been in America in the Cold War, but, but no longer is. I, I don't know. To, what is that? To
0: some extent. Well, to, to, just to some extent, but what you find instead is that it's not the economic distinction between the South and the North that becomes very sharp. Uh, if you like, the extent to which racial division plots itself against Korean life, it's in the distinction between the South and the North. Uh, the North as a kind of residually self-proclaimed pure infant race. Um, the South as simply more mature and alive to the realities of the world. I think what, what's, what's really interesting about so much South Korean film is the absence of the markers of race or racial conflict, which means – I mean, you, you do have some of that in some films, uh, but it's very, very rare. What you really do find instead is – is the full confrontation with the high and the low in a single society and the primary differentiating marker being, uh, I mean, quite literally in the case of something like Parasite, those who live on top and those who live down at the bottom. In other words, it's simply that it is able to be aesthetically portrayed and also portrayed clearly as something that involves everyone within a common moral community. This is where, though, this is where I think the absence, the failure to be able to do this in the West is really harming us. I mean, George, you were saying before that that it, it mightn't be that the working class are invisible but maybe they kind of lend themselves to the sort of inevitable generalization that the media and social media in particular gives rise to. In other words, those people are like that. Those people yeah, believe yeah. these things. These people are latent or nascent misogynists or racists or miscegenationists.
2: Or, um, or and not. It's- but that, yeah, after Trump's election, there was this huge crisis in the media. How did we miss this? What happened? And – the New York Times sent reporters out to the Midwest as if they were opening foreign bureaus to try <laughs> to understand what the country's number one paper had missed. And there was about eight months of reports on towns in Wisconsin. And and finally, a piece about a nice young man who was a neo-Nazi in Ohio. And that little profile got so much heat and rage from not just readers, but from within the paper, that that kind of shut down the bureau. That was the end of the effort to try to understand the Trump voter. But it was really kind of doomed from the start because as you say, Scott, it was all in this anthropological mode of, well, who are they? How do we generalize about them? Are they racist or are they just the downtrodden? And it became this reductive and simplistic caricature because it's all a symptom of how profoundly cut off people who are reporters at the New York Times or at the New Yorker or the Atlantic are from 50 or 60% of Americans. And if you try to get too close, you might run into trouble. You might be accused of being a little too sympathetic. So people are just tormented by how to write about this. And in the end, have kind of fallen back on a you just can't explain these people they're all crazy and and a threat to the republic which is partly true
1: that's the voice of george packer a staff writer at the atlantic also the author of last best hope our guest on this week's edition of the minefield my name scott stevens is my co-host
0: One of the things, one of the many things that thrilled me about Last Best Hope is the use that you made of a poet, a writer, a democratic philosopher who was very, very dear to me, namely Walt Whitman. It's, it's far too much to say that Whitman had anything like a well-formed politics, a well-formed conception even of democratic politics. For, for Whitman, his form of politics was an absolute refusal to engage in contempt for another human being. He uh, reflected and wrote repeatedly that in rejecting another, I am rejecting myself. So infinite, so transcendent is that which humans share, that one cannot finally, fully, simply ride off another person. And so you have these extraordinary moments in, for instance, Leaves of Grass, one of my favorite moments, which again, to my delight, you invoke in the book where the poet addresses president and slave with the same warm familiarity. Hello, brother. How are you, my friend? And there's something about the poet's words that hold those two members of a democratic polity within the same moral community, two members of a common political community that can be addressed in common. They can see one another. They can recognize one another in common. It seems to me that one of the things that these forms of either media-based or social media-fueled generalization, those people are like that. And I think, in, in a very real way, this goes in both directions, doesn't it? You know, the number of times right. we hear politicians in this country refer, referring to latte-sipping, you know, soy-eating, veggie-lefties in their inner-city the, condos, the elites, yeah, the elites, the coastal elites. We we see this fully in both directions. But what really is lacking here isn't just the Cultural infrastructure that would allow us to recognize one another as being members within a common community, but it seems to me increasingly we are both being uh, applauded by and further encouraged to separate ourselves from those people that are regarded as finally, ultimately, being if not outcasts, then people that our democratic life would quite frankly be better off without. We are, we are encouraged. To cut people off, we are discouraged from moments of genuine mutual regard, genuine sympathy. And it just strikes me that one of the great visions of the late 17th, early 18th, and throughout the 19th century was something called a society of equals. Rousseau would even refer to it as something like a classless society, by which he didn't mean no classes, but none of the necessary humiliations that prevent people from regarding one another fully as being members of a common community.
2: This this is what the, the Michigan philosopher Elizabeth Anderson has called democratic equality, by which she means a society in which there is no way to to oppress. That inequality is oppression. It's taking the will and dignity away from someone else. And yeah, you, you've articulated beautifully I was reading a fair amount of 19th century literature and history when I was working on Last Best Hope. I think I was almost just magnetically drawn back to the Civil War period because there is a real air, atmosphere, a real uh, taste in the air right now of something like the beginning of the Civil War. And so I read Whitman, Leaves of Grass, which began before the Civil War, and then Democratic Vistas, his pamphlet, which came out just after, And the passage you just quoted, Scott, continues with these lines which come straight out of January 6th. He walks with perfect ease in the Capitol. He walks among the Congress. And one representative says to another, here is our equal appearing and new. So January 6th is like a gross perversion of that democratic equality where anyone can walk through the Capitol and... A high official says, here is our equal. There was one person who was part of the mob that sacked the Capitol, who said afterward that he had first gone to the Capitol in 1975 or something as a young man and felt just like that line from Whitman. But when he went back, he felt that that had been taken away from him and he was trying to reclaim it. I'm not saying anything in favor of the insurrection. But what I am saying is the emotions of the insurrection have to be in some ways connected to the feeling of having that that equal dignity, that equality of spirit taken away that is being reclaimed by violence. And Whitman, we may be incapable of feeling what Whitman felt about one another, because for him, it was just such a an organizing natural driving impulse to see everyone else as as an equal, which meant a brother or sister. It, I mean, it really is a spiritual kind of politics. It's not at all a worked out politics, but it's based on on that that spirit of embracing everyone as an equal. And I know that it's impossible, but I also want that to be, the thing that we aspire to, and because it is the thing that we have completely lost. So that when you read Whitman now, the great poet of American democracy, you just don't recognize the country that he's writing about.
1: We do have a habit of hating our siblings though, don't we?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Until someone else begins picking on them. And then there are these, and this is actually a political analogy too, isn't it? Then we um, suddenly discover a comrade in arms. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Does that happen in
2: politics? I suppose it does, right? Like, I think it happens with countries. I mean, I feel yeah. this way. When I am talking to another American, I'm willing to listen to any manner of attack. But when I go abroad and hear it, I start to get a little bit edgy. And I think it's similar to having one's own family criticized from outside versus inside.
1: Yes, I understand that. But if you let, let's go back to this sort of online society that you're talking about. I think people are probably more likely to take some kind of nourishment or at least enjoyment by people, by seeing people from another country attack their own domestic enemies, right? Mm. Uh, I, I think we're witnessing this I mean, in Australia a lot. We have a prime minister that there are a lot of people in Australia who really don't like him and watching him be attacked on the international stage is something that the people who don't like the Prime Minister love to see. I think hmm. you saw the same thing happen with Trump. Trump's a very different when, figure. To when he was Prime
2: laughed State. at by the UN General Assembly, for example, yeah.
1: Yeah, at that point, maybe that is the breakdown of the family, of the sort of the Whitman family that you're talking about, um, in that you are finally actually happy to see your sibling destroyed because you no longer conceive of them as your sibling.
2: Because they're now trying to destroy the family. Mm.
0: Yeah. Can I ask the two of you a question? This, for me, is the increasingly pressing question, I guess. In a time of zero-sum moral and political conflict, where if you pay attention to social divisions, it means you are—or socioeconomic divisions, you are neglecting the real divisions, for instance. If you pay attention to the plight of, of coal miners, you are neglecting the climate. Do we lose anything democratically, morally? Do we lose anything? Do we lose any resource in our arsenal, any weapon at our hand? Do we lose anything in the common struggle against racism and sexism, for instance? Do we lose anything by paying better attention, by being truly attentive to those who continue to suffer the injuries, the humiliations of class?
2: I think... um... What I want to say is, no, we gained something because being attentive to those humiliations should make one attentive to all kinds of humiliations, including humiliations of race and sex and any kind of oppression and any kind of contempt, rather than the language and the ideology that my country, with a lot of influence around the world, is embracing on these subjects, which is to kind of, I would almost say, professionalize morality and turn it into uh, an abstract concept that is difficult to grasp for ordinary people that rejects ordinary moral language and even common sense and replaces it with a sophisticated vocabulary that keeps changing so that it keeps letting you know that you are still behind the curve. Instead, I I would like to think that to have a bit of Whitman in our attitude toward one another would make us more imaginative, more empathetic and better citizens on every count rather than the the kind of zero sum, as you say, morality that we pursue now, which I think violates People's notion of basic decency—it—it it doesn't square with it. It so often, normal reactions to the way people behave are are trumped or transcended by um, by an ideology that it's doesn't connect to it. I don't know if I'm explaining this very no, no, well, I understand but
1: understand exactly what you're saying. But that's the nature
2: of all kind of revolutionary sentiment, isn't it? Yeah, I'm I'm just finishing a wonderful book on the Russian Revolution called A People's Tragedy. Um, Not a new one, but just a wonderful one-volume massive account. And that's exactly what keeps coming up, is the the gap between the Bolsheviks and the people, and the need to use, in their case, massive violence, which of course we're not at yet, but force, coercion. And there are different forms of coercion in order to remake human beings. Mm. And I think that's um that's a an illiberal and a doomed enterprise and there's a bit too much of that on the right and the left now for my taste
1: yeah but if you believe that it needs to be remade there is no other option right that that's the whole logic of it
2: it is yeah. it is and then you find that you haven't remade it at all um, the bolsheviks did for the worse not maybe not compared to tsarism although having finished these 800 pages it's pretty hard for me to say that, any, uh, that there was real improvement. But in our case, I don't even think it is to remake because we don't remake, because we're not connected to the material world and to people's conditions of life because it is all happening in language and online. Mm-hmm. And so it dissolves in the air. It, it diagnoses
1: um, a symbolic hegemony and it's therefore trying to remake a symbolic hegemony. But that's not the same thing as a material one and yeah
2: well this is where class the missing analysis of class is so devastating because um in the end you haven't really changed the things that matter which is how people live not just how they think and speak
1: join us next week when george packer talks us through the merits or otherwise of revolution uh, here on the <laughs> uh, this week however we will have to be content with the pearls that he has granted us today george thank you so much for joining us on the show
2: I really enjoyed it. It was actually about as high level of conversation as I'm capable of having at this hour. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We strategically
1: chose to speak to you at your lowest hour so that we could engage, (laughs) we could find some kind of overlap. Um, George Packer is a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of Last Best Hope, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. Uh, We'll see you next week.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.